Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I always say it. I can't complain. Hope everyone out there is feeling uh, just as good as uh, as I am today. You are looking like you're feeling pretty well. How are you? I'm glowing, Lance. Thank you. You're glowing. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm feeling great. This episode that we have today, Lance, is with a, a real interesting guy. He's former NYPD, and he's worked on a lot of cases. He's got a lot of crazy stories, and it's a fun interview. His name is Vic Ferrari. He's an author. You can find his Amazon page. It's linked in the show notes. He's written a bunch of books. Yeah, he's written a bunch of books about the NYPD, and we wanted to get him on the show because every so often we would like to change the pace a little bit. And instead of talking about law enforcement in the sense of a missing person case and why aren't they doing this or why did they do this and always having that, I guess, cloud over over law enforcement when you're talking about a person who hasn't been discovered in like 20 plus years. It's not all negative. These are human beings. And Vic is somebody who does a really good job at bringing out human moments within his department. He's written books with titles like Law and Disorder, the NYPD's Flying Circus. Very funny biting humor, great storytelling, but a bit of a warning if you are offended by foul language. This interview literally would have been two and a half minutes had we cut out every swear that Vic throws around. He does not give an F about being proper with his language, and honestly, that's part of his charm. When we first got on the Zoom, we just started launching into uh, cusses about the weather <laughs> the uh, you know, before we even started rolling, so that was kind of, uh, kind of fun. But yeah, it's, it's definitely fun to talk with Vic. We'll mark this episode explicit, but like you said, we can't really cut all the curse words um, or potential offensive words because, you know, some of the stories maybe wouldn't make sense. So we're just going to roll with all of it and mark it explicit and let this warning here sit in the intro. Absolutely. Again, it's part of the storytelling. He has such a rich way of telling a story. To cut it would just be so distracting. Roll with it. Roll with it. Okay, everybody. And then we want to let you know that we are going to CrimeCon at the end of April. We are? Yeah, no, we really are. In Vegas. It's going to be amazing. We're even doing live shows there, Lance. My goodness. We have finally gotten our schedule, and we're doing a Crawl Space live show at 1.20 p.m. on Saturday, April 30th in Las Vegas at the Podcast Row Studio. It's going to be epic. We can't tell you exactly who's going to join us yet, but we do know. And we also have a missing live that we're going to do at CrimeCon on Friday, April 29th, and that's going to be at 5.50 p.m. to 6.40 p.m., and that's also from the Podcast Row studio. That's going to be a banger as well. And again, it is very tempting to let everyone know who we're speaking with on both of those shows, but we really enjoy playing out the tease. That's what they call a big market tease in the biz. If that's not enough to put you over the edge, if you're not sure whether or not you want to go to CrimeCon in Vegas on April 29th, April 30th, and May 1st, toggle on over to CrimeCon.com. You can go for the standard badge. You can type in crawl space, all one word, and get 10% off that aforementioned standard badge. That's a small price to pay to hang out with such a wonderful, welcoming, passionate community. And I also want to let people know about our new subscription service. You can find what? that at crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and we are doing weekly bonus shows. We're bringing you our live crime and culture audio right there and we're giving you ad-free episodes too. I mean, that might be one of the best perks. We're going to do a thing where we're actually Zooming, doing a Q&A, live Q&As with our subscribers. So that's going to be rolled out pretty soon as well, Lance. You'll be able to join us on a Crawlspace Crypt or on a Hidden Opinions. Fantastic. And we were doing this subscription service through Patreon, 
but this one at Supporting Cast just has more of the tools that we need in order to bring you the content that we want to bring you. And it is very important for us to deliver quality content. If you're paying for it, you got to know that you're getting something that's not going to be heard on the public feed. And we've been working with our new partners at Glassbox Media. They highly recommended that we go through Supporting Cast. So far, it's been a very successful process. Check it out. Also, check out Glassbox Media at glassboxmedia.com and all the shows that they have going on their network. We're super proud to be a partner with them. Future's looking bright. Pop on those shades. Future's looking as bright as your complexion, Tim. All right, everyone. (laughs) Thanks a lot for listening. We will see you in Vegas. All right, we're going to go to a commercial here. Make sure to follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Welcome to the podcast, Vic Ferrari. How are you today? Hi, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. We're going to get into a lot of stuff in this conversation. And we even had a little mini conversation before we hit record just about the weather differences between New York and the Northeast for the most part and Florida. And really, uh, I feel like we're already like pretty good friends right now, but really excited to speak with you because we don't get an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who's former law enforcement where we are not speaking about a missing person or a cold case or just something like that'll bring us down, something heavy. You write a lot of books about a peek behind the curtain of the NYPD, but it, it's it's in a humorous style. No, that, that's a fair and accurate statement. Yeah, when I got into writing police books, I said, you know, everybody, I mean, a lot of my peers, and, and listen, that's their genre, that's great, I have nothing against it, but they, a, lot of, a lot of cops write about their cases that tend, you're right, that tend to be dark and, you know, someone gets their head sawed off. And I mean, I've got that too. But um, my books are more a behind the scenes look, like you said, in different units I worked in, the characters I worked with, cops getting themselves in trouble, uh, interesting criminals, both moronic and and highly intelligent, you know, the scams they pull off and just, you know, things that come back around later on in life. And you're right, I tend to focus on the upbeat things that, that people wouldn't know generally that would go on inside an NYPD precinct or unit. You know, and one thing I really like about that approach is that it humanizes law enforcement. And so many times we get stories about law enforcement just being this, I guess, like a shield. Oh, Literally yeah. speaking, you only see somebody in a uniform as, as a shield. We're trained to look at law enforcement and be afraid of them, because why else are we speaking to law enforcement right. in that moment? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I don't have my superpowers anymore. I, I retired, moved down to Florida, so I can get a ticket just like everybody else. And I mean, I've gotten pulled over a couple of times down here. And I mean, you're right. It's like, oh, shit, what did I do? You know what I mean? It's like, all right. Now, the first thing is like, if this guy bangs me, I'm going to get my insurance is going to go up. Now I'm going to have to sit in a class like a moron and try to get points off. Like your mind starts going to all these things like your life flashes behind you before you in a minute. So, yeah, you're right. But like most cops 
when you meet a cop for the first time, whether they show up to your house for something or you got a question, you're going to get that stoic, robotic answer. They're not letting you in. They'll talk to you all day long through the screen door, but they're not going to let you in. And the reason for that is that there is like an, a parent child relationship, because for the most part, people come to the police for what? To solve a problem, to mediate something. You know, a cop's not going to treat you like they're, they're, you know, your kid, their kid and pat you on the head. Yeah, you know what? Hey, you know what? After I lock up your husband, why don't we grab a beer? You, you know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. You know, I try to portray what goes on after that happens. I want to talk more about your writing in a minute, but I want to get a little bit more background on you okay. as a uh, as law enforcement. So you worked for NYPD? Yeah, I did a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. But just to give you a quick background, I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City, always wanted to be a police officer. By the age of five, I knew I wanted to be an NYPD detective. And my parents tried every trick in the book to send me to college and get me into the electrician's union. And I frustrated them to no end. I, I, I wouldn't hear of it. So I got hired when I was 21. And uh, I worked in a lot of units. If you ever saw the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx, which is filmed actually in the old Fort Two, which Fort Apache, by the time I got there, was called Little House on the Prairie because the whole neighborhood was burned and bombed out. Um, I worked in a lot of units. I worked in a DUI unit, which I absolutely hated. I got a ton of stories for that. Um, I My thing was I always liked cars. So my last 10 years I spent in the NYPD's auto crime division. I was a detective there. We worked organized crime, like the mafia, chop shops, selling stolen cars, stealing stolen cars, exporting stolen cars to different countries, identity theft. And uh, for a time, I also worked in Manhattan North Narcotics, where, you know, doing buy and bust operations and doing search warrants and hitting doors. And a couple of times I bought, you know, street level drugs. The NYPD is like a merry-go-round and it's time to get off. And you got to know when to get off. If you stay on too long, that horse is going to throw you on your head. So 20 and out for me, I got out and then I got into writing. Yeah, we've spoken to some other former law enforcement, and um, some of them I, I I feel like would agree with you and would also say I might have hung on a little too long. What was the moment that you knew, uh, you know, your 20 years, it was time to uh, step step aside? So I worked in the same place for the last 10 years, and I absolutely loved it. It was like it was match made in heaven working in that division because I was always a car guy, and I loved it. What, what, what happened is everybody in life outlives their usefulness. And I went from being the guy that, you know, everybody would come to and oh, I got a question about a car title. How do I get a search warrant for this? Well, you know, all my friends and the guys I worked with started retiring or going to different units. They moved on. The supervisors still moved on. And I was still a valuable cog, but I could see the writing on the wall and it was written in crayon. And I said, you know, I'm, I don't want to be the older guy in the office because I think I, when did I retire? I was 41. When I got out at 41, I was a good five, six years older than any detective or cop in that office. So you start losing things in common, just something simple as a reference to a movie or something, you get a scratch on your head. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's a generational thing, actually. And the NYPD was changing, and in my opinion, not for the better. And I said, well, you know what, shame on me if there's piss in the pool, and I'm going to continue to sit in it. So after a while, I said, you know what? Retirement sounds good. You know, you're going to pay me and, you know, I'll hopefully keep my health benefits and, you know, I can step off. And that's what I did. But probably about a year, year and a half. I never thought about retirement, but probably about a year and year and a half before I hit my 20, it just started creeping in. Like, maybe I should go, you know, and then then by the last three months, like I was banging on the door to get out. 
Well, congratulations for um, coming up with the greatest metaphor. Is that a metaphor? There's piss in the pool. Shame on me. There's piss in the pool, and I'm. I, that's the greatest metaphor ever on this. On, on I don't know if I so heard far. that or it just, but that's kind of what it was like. Did I hear that somewhere? I might have heard that somewhere. That's amazing. I'm, I'm. I have to practice saying that so when I finally use it and when I apply it in my own life, it's going to come out okay. Yeah, when you start throwing the word piss around in a sentence, you got to be careful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the, the way I would end up doing it is like I would I just mangle it. So then I would be the strange guy at the dinner party who tried <laughs> right, to crack the right, joke. Right. And my girlfriend would look at me and be like, what? What are you doing? What You're about to piss in the pool? What? You're going to go piss in our pool? <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the generational difference between you as a 40 year old detective being the oldest detective in that unit. In that example, you're saying maybe a clue or some part of the case might be lost on you because it was something you hadn't experienced yet because of your age? No, what it was is I'll give you an example. And I, you know, you guys are a lot younger than me. So I really, I don't want to like point this at you guys, but I'll give you an example. So it was more, um, yeah, the millennials were coming in and so they would come to a problem. They would come to a point in a case, like a dead end. And they didn't know to go left or right. They just, it was like a video game. Well, the game said it's over. So, okay, I'm just going to close this case and move on. And then my lieutenant would say, hey, can you help so-and-so with the case? And I would say, did you try this? Yeah, but he said no. Well, you know, you learn as a detective or a cop, you don't take no for an answer. And if you're looking to get information on a case, if possible, you go to the person in person. Phone call, it's very easy for somebody to hide from you. They can avoid you. They can hang up. They can tell you no. And you're not, you're not reading them. You're not reading their body language. You know, the person tells you no and hangs up. Well, well, that's it. But if you're standing in front of them and you say, I'm not talking about bending someone's hand behind their head, but well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You can get more out of somebody face to face. You definitely can. Or you'll think of an additional question while you're standing in front of them. You know what I mean? A phone call is so final. Basically, what was happening was my lieutenant realized he was burning me out. He was a great guy. But I mean, you know, you kind of get punished sometimes for being competent. I was kind of cleaning up a lot of the messes in my office in addition to doing what I had to do. So it just was burning me out. The Grand Theft Auto um, division, like how how big of a division is that at uh, NYPD? Well, the okay, so the NYPD, New York City Police Department, while I was there, had about thirty five to forty thousand cops at any given time, right? So the Auto Crime Division covered the whole five boroughs. Our unit was one hundred and twenty detectives. Our main office was out in Queens. I worked in the Bronx Manhattan team. So we were in the Bronx office and there were 20 detectives there. So, but the whole unit was 120 detectives. But to put it into perspective, when I got into the auto crime division in 97, in the early 90s, the NYPD was averaging 150,000 stolen cars a year. Yeah. So it was like shooting fish in the barrel. If you wanted to go out and grab a guy driving a stolen car and you had a computer car or, or knew what to look for, because it's actually an art, um, it was like shooting fish in the barrel. Finding a stolen car is an art? Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. I'll give you an example. There's a lot of different types of car thieves. Okay. So if you're going to start low with the garden variety, what I like to call the pests or the pain in the ass, that's teenagers that'll find keys in the ignition, 
or there's an easy car to steal with a screwdriver and one kid teaches another kid. And then before you know it, they're all joyriding. You'll pick them off near high schools at dismissal time or in the beginning of school or movie theater parking lots or where, where young people hang out. They'll tend to hold on to a car until it dies. They'll hold on to that car way too long. They'll have you are an illegally parked sticker in their window, or they'll be driving around with a um, like those balloon tires. You know, you get a flat, you use that tire that's only good for 40 miles and they drive it for 500. They're easy, right? Um, drug addicts are actually easy too, because they'll steal a car to run their errands, commit other crimes, go to drug locations to cop. And then, you know, a heroin addict, it's a nice place to sleep. You go, you, you buy a couple of bags of dope, you go to a park, a parking lot or something or someplace where no one's going to bother you. you. You just park off to the side and you, you shoot up and you crash. I mean, they're, they're actually pretty easy to pick off too. And they'll drive that car worse than the teenagers. It becomes their car. You know what I mean? It's like they're actually doing repairs to this fucking thing when it's not even their car. Well, you'll see bent up license plates or they'll swap plates or, a, you know, a dirty plate on a clean car or one bolt holding the thing on. Then then we take it a step further. You got the mid-level guys, the guys that, you know, they, they graduated from being teenagers, stealing cars. Now they're stealing for their friends. You got a friend that's into racing Hondas. And, you know, as a teenager, this kid used to steal Hondas. So what does he do? His friend blows an engine. I'll get you a Honda goes out and steals a Honda. And then these aren't professional chop shops, but it's some kid whose father's got a garage in back of the house. They throw the Honda in there. They take the motor out and then they park the fucking thing around the block. They're pretty easy to pick off. Then you got the guys that are working for the body shops. They, they steal to order. And, you know, you'll have a body shop, junkyards. Back in the day, it was more junkyards than body shops, but body shops are just as guilty. And they'll steal to order. And the whole car market fuels this because say for argument's sake, you fuck up your car, you got a front end hit and you go to body shop A and body shop A tells you it's going to be a $1,500 deductible out of your pocket. And it's going to take two, two weeks to get your car back. And you go, oh, fuck. All right, let me go to the next guy. You go to body shop B. That guy tells you I have the car back in three days and don't worry about the deductible. Well, you're going to go to B, but the reason, but the reason B gets those parts, B is an order in those parts from Honda. You know what I mean? B is sending a kid out to swipe a car. They're parking it somewhere. They're chopping it up and then they're bringing him the parts. So depending on the size of the place, they'll bring the steel. We used to call the car steel. They'll bring the steel into the shop. They'll pull the sheet metal off it quick and then get it out of there. Then you got the guys that steal cars for tagging where they change the vehicle identification numbers and then resell the car. And 99% of the time with the people that buy those cars, they're in on it. You know, we used to stop these people, you know, you got a guy driving a $60,000 Mercedes, and then you get it out of him that he paid $15,000 for the car. And it's like, you bought this brand new car for $15,000 from a guy in the street. What's the matter? You didn't want the warranty for Mercedes? The guys that tend to steal for those guys are also the guys that steal cars to be exported out of the country. Sorry, I'm giving you like a lot you asked, I told, you know. No, no this, this is, is this is super fascinating. Now, I've seen a lot of movies where the uh, perpetrator will steal a car and will drive into a mall parking lot. And you had mentioned they swap plates. And I've seen that in movies. Is that true? Can, yeah. can I go steal a car, swap a plate, and I'll get away with it forever? Well, here's the thing. The only overhead a car thief or any criminal in general is getting caught and going to jail, right? So the longer, if you're not, you know, the lower tier guys, the morons, I'm talking about the guys that are stealing to make money, right? The longer you hold on to that car, the more increase. So a professional, so say for argument's sake, a professional gets an order for a Honda Accord, right? For, for a body shop. What he'll do is he'll steal that car and he's going to park it somewhere. 
and he's going to let it cool off. He wants to see, A, if it's got a navigation system. They'll park it somewhere to see if it's got low jack, a tracking device. They'll park it to see if it's got navigation. They'll park it to see if they got followed. And they'll let that thing cool off for a couple of days. They'll even, a lot of times, they're smart. They'll park it near a police station. Believe it or not, not far, a couple of blocks in the police station, because if the co- then they'll know that thing is hot, right? Then what they'll do is they'll contact the body shop or the junkyard. Now, some of these places, it's an open market. Yeah, bring the fucking thing in. I'll take it. Other guys like, no, 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 no. Park it over here, and I'll send a couple of guys to go strip it. And they'll take the parts and then bring it to the shop because the shop doesn't want the steel in there that long either. Because again, that's a hot potato. Nobody wants that fucking thing. They just want the parts of the motor. They want it swapped and just throw that. We call it the bones. Get the fucking bones out of here. That's why you're driving sometimes and you'll see a shell and you're like, how the fuck did this thing get there? Or in the woods, a lot of times they'll like off the side of a highway into the woods. They'll drive it in there. And with one guy will park it and then other guys will come in like, like, like vultures, literally, and, and, and strip the thing. Some specifics. What happened with the, the pair of nuns who, uh, who stole a car? Well, they didn't. <laughs> oh, you, you did your homework. So <laughs> in the early 90s, my partner and I actually, my partner and I, the guy, the guy that I was working with is in uh, the, the Netflix series Crime Scene, the Times Square Killer. Uh-huh. He actually narrates it. He and I are working together and these two nuns flag us down. They're all nervous. What happened was Mother Superior was out of town for the weekend. And these two took the church car and, you know, they were doing some shopping down in the Bronx, in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. And they parked in this pizza. I think it was a pizzeria parking lot. And they went into like the Woolworths. They come out, the car is gone. So they flagged this down. Now, they were both young, you know, they, I mean, it was two young and attractive nuns. I mean, I just, I don't know how else to say it. In that neighborhood, you had the College of Mount St. Vincent, where you got a lot of girl, female nursing students, and you also had um, Manhattan College. So we had been involved with sorority and fraternity pranks, you know, guys running into diners, naked, stealing salt, salt shakers and all types of initiation. So we thought it was like, an initiation where they told them to dress up like nuns and see if they could get a, get a ride out of it. But I mean, the, they started going to pieces that they got their car towed. You know, the towing company wasn't going to let their car out. I think it was for like a hundred bucks. So we go over to the tow yard and this guy was less than cooperative. And I hate to say this, but people in the towing company, I mean, I've never met one that was nice <laughs> or honest. Sorry. Maybe, maybe there is. And you guys are going to catch a yeah, lot of Neither shit have I. <laughs> They, they're almost like in Goodfellas, fuck you, pay me. Like they don't have a heart, man. It's like the Grinch got a tow truck. So anyway, this guy is just like, no, 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 no. I don't know what to tell you. So I went and I got a hundred bucks and I got their car out of hock. And I never thought I'd see that money again. I, I never did. And I was living with my parents at my at the time because I was like 22 or something like that. I had between apartments or something. And uh, the nun's name was Sister Samantha. And my father was a smart ass. The nun starts calling my house and my dad goes, Hey, sister Samantha called. And I said, yeah, okay. And he goes, sister Samantha. I go, it's a nun. And my father goes, I don't care who you date. Whoa, whoa, what? A nun. I said, yeah. And he goes, get back here. So he starts pounding me with questions, but then to get the money back, because they weren't supposed to have the car. So if I showed up at this nunnery, um, that would raise more questions. So then it turned into like a Tom Clancy spy novel because I had to meet Sister Samantha on a park bench near like a babbling brook, not far from where the nunnery was. And she gave me an envelope and we had a nice conversation and she gave me the money. And that was the last time I saw it. 
Yeah, there's no training for something like that, right? The shit that comes at you, I'm going to tell you something. When you become an NYPD cop, even though things have changed, it's like having a front row seat at the fucking circus because the second you walk out of a precinct, anything can happen. It's like Roger Rabbit Toontown. There's characters coming up to you. You know, I love when they say, well, we got to train the police. What Train them for what? I mean, what training is there? Now, listen, if a nun approaches you and tells you that a car got towed, you know what I mean? You're just dealing with a variety of things that are coming at you fast. I mean, in field training, they dropped me off on a corner in the South Bronx in front of rows and rows and rows of burned out buildings with just junkies and crackheads walking around. I'm like, am I supposed to do here? But y- you figure it out. It's like getting thrown. It's baptism by fire. Really? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And you just used the term, uh, it's like a it's like a front row seat to the circus. And one of your books is the NYPD's Flying Circus. You have a bunch of wild stories in there. Uh, one of them is about a detective named El Diablo. Can you fill us in a little bit on El Diablo? El Diablo was Irish, but the Spanish cops used to call him El Diablo because anybody that worked with this fucking guy, you either got a divorce or you converted to Christianity and went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, the guy was funny and a big party. He'd say anything to anybody. He was all, just the antics never stopped. And we used to say like, he's got to have the Prince of Darkness run an interference for him because <laughs> he never really got in trouble. He'd get kicked in the ass once in a while, but nothing big. So he's down in, in Midtown one time having a couple of cocktails and he's talking to a couple of floozies at the bar and One of those handsome cab operators, like if you've ever been to Manhattan, those guys that ride the horse and carriage around Central Park for like 15 minutes and you give them $400. One of those guys comes walking into the bar to use the bathroom and he's wearing the fucking top hat and, you know, the felt outfit. I mean, it's obvious who he is. And he comes walking past the bar and El Diablo sees him and he's drunk and he goes, hey, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride around the block? So the handsome cab operator goes, yeah, sure, and goes into the bathroom. So El Diablo convinces the two floozies at the bar. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Come on. They go outside. He gets them in the back of the horse and carriage. He gets the whip and, you know, yam mule or whatever. And the horse and carriage starts walking off, you know, down 59th or 57th Street. So, you know, at first everything's going well, you know, and, you know, El Diablo, you know, he, he didn't grow up and he didn't know nothing about horses. The guy grew up in the Bronx. So the horse quickly figures out that there's an idiot behind the wheel or behind the horse. And the horse starts blowing lights now in Midtown, which is scary. I mean, you got a horse and carriage going through red lights. Well, the horse says, you know what? Enough of this. Fuck this. I'm going back to the barn. I want some oats. So the horse turns around and starts heading for Central Park in a trot. El Diablo can't stop the horse and carriage. The two floozies in the back of the, uh, of the thing are, are, are screaming, let us out, let us out. He can't stop it. Meanwhile, he blows by a couple of other handsome cab operators that realize, hey, that's not Jerry. Someone stole Jerry's horse and carriage, right? So they go after him. So it turns out into like a scene out of Ben-Hur, like a chariot race. The three of them go into Central Park. They kind of, one gets in front of him, one gets in back of him, and they slow him down after a while until they get the horse and carriage, the stolen horse and carriage to stop. 
The two floozies jump out and run into Central Park. The two handsome cab operators are ready to beat the shit out of El Diablo for stealing their friend's horse and carriage. Like, no, 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 no. I'll go to an ATM, blah, 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 blah. The owner's pissed. They take him to an ATM. El Diablo pulls out the maximum of 500 bucks, pays them on the scene, and the whole thing goes away. <laughs> I love how abruptly that story ends. Yeah. It's just 500 bucks. There you go. End of story. Going back. Well, to the he bar. could have gotten suspended and fired. You know, I mean, you know, right. 500 bucks. He's getting off cheap, don't you think? And you have another book called Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. Can you tell us any uh, funny stories from that one? Yeah, I mean, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. It's it's um, that was my first book is before I got into writing about the police department. It's just the ridiculous things that people do to shorten their life expectancy, in my opinion, like, <laughs> you know, running with the bulls in Spain. Like, why the fuck would you go to Spain? If you want to live dangerously, why go to Spain? Fucking ride the subway. You want you want a taste of danger? You'll get cut. You know what I mean? You're going to go to Spain to get a fucking gourd. I, I don't think so. So it's, it's just the wild things that I've observed in my life as far as the, the ridiculous things that people do to shorten their life expectancy. What do you think that is? You think it's uh, just adrenaline junkies? Well, now that came up, but like my brother was the inspiration actually for that book. In my books, I refer to my brother as Fredo Corleone. And there's a lot of <laughs> similarities from my brother and Michael Corleone's dim-witted sidekick brother. But my brother as a child was always doing stupid things with fireworks, my brother was always winding up in the emergency room when we were kids. Me, not so much, but him. And I remember one time my father said, that's it. The next time you get hurt, you're not, I'm not taking you to the hospital. That's it. My brother said, fine. So a couple of weeks later, my brother came down with, um, oh, God, I forgot if it was encephalitis or meningitis. I mean, so many years ago. So he's in the hospital, like, you know, close to death and, and medicated. The doctor turns to my father and goes, where did he get this scar? My father goes, what scar? He rolls up my, my brother's uh, gown and my brother's got like a eight inch scar down his arm. And he, my father goes, I, I don't know when he got it. He goes, well, it looks like he sewed it himself. So we got out of my brother when he came to my brother was doing like basic medical repairs on himself. He got a needle and thread and sewed up the, the wound himself. Yeah. I mean, so like I said, my brother is the inspiration for that book. What? Yeah. Oh, dude. Parent. Did, did, one time we got pulled out of school. In middle school, we got he and I got pulled out of school. It was like we got arrested. They separated us. I because I remember like seeing my brother in the next room, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like I'm like in seventh grade, he's in sixth grade, and I see my brother in the next room, and they're like, how's it going at home? Fine. Um, your parents beat you. I'm like, no. You know, like it, it, they're asking like these pointed questions, right? And then the next thing you know, I see my mother there. And it was because of my brother sewing himself up. He had done it again. We had a wound on his foot. And, he, you know, in, in gym class, it, it just it, the antics never stopped with him. Like him and his friend Pinhead one time had a, um, a contest who could jump down the most flight of stairs. My brother won. He jumped the whole flight and broke his leg. You know what I mean? So it was always raising the bar with with his stupidity. Is it fair to say that your brother and Pinhead are two of the dickheads in the book? Yes. And both of them are <laughs> retired NYPD members. A lot to unpack on that last 20 seconds. Uh, what does one have to do to get a nickname of Pinhead? He's a good guy. I mean, I feel, kind of feel bad dishing on him. I didn't give him the nickname. Actually, I'm writing a book now, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. That's more of my childhood and Catholic high school. He was a good guy. He really, and he is a good guy. It's just 
he was tall and thin, very tall and thin. And I guess he had a small head and one of the other guys called him pinhead. You know how it is with kids. It's, and then the, then the fucking name sticks. Is that the record after your brother jumped down the flight? What did anybody else try for further steps? No, no. My brother did the whole flight. Do you have any thoughts or words for um, the people who take selfies from high places and, and fall? I really don't have a lot of sympathy for them. Like, like, yes, I feel terrible that someone loses their life. But I mean, you know, life's dangerous enough. Something unpredictable can happen. You know what I mean? But it's like people race to the finish line of death. They just do it. I, I don't get it. Like, I get adrenaline. I still play softball. I come out of that batter's box. Like, that's about as exciting as it goes. I went from getting into hundreds of car chases to, you know, my whole thing now is playing softball just to get like that adrenaline boost but yeah i mean it people put themselves in place sometimes and they don't realize how fragile life can be and like you said taking a selfie you know on a cliff what could go wrong you, you know it's i don't i don't get it tell us about some of those car chases cuz that's fascinating to me god i've had so many and i've had so many repeat customers one time there's three of us in a car we're in an unmarked car and we're driving around we're in a home depot parking lot I'm giving away too many secrets how to spot stolen cars. We're in a Home Depot parking lot, and it's just about to rain. It's dead of summer, and there's a Dodge Caravan with its windows rolled down. Nobody leaves. Even if it's a shitbox car, nobody really leaves their windows rolled down in, the, in a parking lot in the Bronx. So I'm in the back seat, and I tell the kid in front, one of the guy in front, I go, Tommy, do me a favor, run that plate. So it comes back stolen. I go, go around. So we go around, and now the car's gone. So where the fuck did he go? He's getting on I-95. And the, the way we used to catch stolen cars, you don't put the light on and try to pull them over. That's going into a chase. What you try to do is you kind of sit back and you do one of two things. If it's a really crowded area, you sit back and you wait till they get stuck at a light behind somebody with no way to go. They're boxed in. Then you just jump out. You give them a tap with the bumper or you just jump out and just start pulling people out of that car. Or what you do is you put it over the air. Hey, I'm following a 16 vehicle. We're going southbound. If someone can cut them off on Tremont and blah, 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 blah. And you can get the police to kind of herd him in. He's getting on a highway. So, and he's at a light. So I says, all right, we're gonna have to follow him a couple of exits and see where he goes before I put this over. Fucking guy looks in the mirror, punches the gas. I'm like, fuck. And he starts ramming people and gets on I-95, bounces off about, we didn't even really chase him. He bounces off a tree. I'm like, that motherfucker, right? He gets away. I was, I was pissed, right? So I go back to our office. I pull the 61, which is the report, the theft report. And my partner goes, what are you doing? He goes, forget about it. I said, I said I'm fucking going to catch that fucking guy. He goes, yeah, you're out of your fucking mind. So I pull the report and I see that the car was stolen 10 days before across the street from where we saw him. I go, that's a junkie. He's holding on to that fucking car. So then what I did was I did a summons check and I saw he was getting parking tickets around this housing project not far from we chased him. I go, he's laying his head there. He's got a relative there, right? So next door to our office was the vice division and I borrowed their car. I went out, I went out and I borrowed an eight-cylinder car. I think it was like a grand marquee or something. I'm like, now I'm going to have a little juice to catch him. And my partner goes, you're out of your fucking mind. He's gone. He dumped that car, blah, 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 blah. We're not in the precinct the next day, five fucking minutes. Who comes driving by? My partner goes, he goes, you're like a fucking psychic. We follow this guy around, right? He pulls into a gas station. The attendant comes out, talks to the attendant, right? I don't want to get the attendant killed. So I'm, I'm, we're sitting back. The attendant puts the gas pump in the side of the car. 
Now, for your listeners out there, if you ever wondered what happens when someone takes off with the nozzle inside the pump, I can tell you what happened. We pull in back of him. He looks up again. He sees us, slams the thing in drive, drives that, uh, what is it, tube? What was it called? The cable? That thing stretched as much as it could, and that metal nozzle came out. When I tell you that thing would have killed someone, kaboom, like it just started swinging around, bouncing off his shit, made a god-awful sound. We start chasing him. Just before he gets stuck in traffic, he mounts the sidewalk and starts running the length of a sidewalk, and then he gets slammed between a fence. And um, in New York on the lamppost, you have these big green boxes that control the lights. So it sheared off the side of his car. If there would have been a passenger there, it would have killed him. It just sheared off like the passenger side of the car. He jumps out and now he's taking his clothes off. So we can't give a clothing description. Like, so now he's got like a red shirt. He's taking the shirt off. He's taking his bandana off and he's hopping fences. So I stick with him. My partner runs around the side and I'm yelling all sorts of shit at him to get him to slow down at least. Finally, we tackle him. We lock him up. We get him in cuffs. I look down and I go, you piece of shit, blah, 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 blah. I go, I locked you up before. He goes, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I did. I locked you up with a stolen Buick three years ago with your wife and family in the car. And he turns to my partner. He goes, you know, your partner's got a really good memory. It's just not worth it to run away from the police. I mean, the trouble that you were in in the first place has just been exponentially increased by the time you're caught, right? You're charging things to your account, yeah. What would have happened if he saw you, got out of the vehicle, and was like, you know, you got me. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting up uh, any resistance here. Here's the dirty little secret. The NYPD forbids you to chase, especially stolen cars. You're allowed, you're allowed to chase a violent felony, an armed robbery. Uh, a homicide. Somebody shot at somebody. They do not want you chasing stolen car. Did we do it? Yeah, all the time. And here's the thing. If no one gets hurt, meaning the bad guy, you don't get hurt. A civilian doesn't get hurt. No harm, no foul. No one's going to say a word about it. If the bad guy winds up dying, cop gets hurt, God forbid a civilian dies, they're going to cut your balls off. They're going to make an example of you. So you walk a fine line. You know what I mean? I always used to say kids were the worst. I was always uh, apprehensive to chase teenagers because God forbid something happens to them. It's going to be worse for me. And B, teenagers, you know, they, they don't have the software installed to realize I could kill somebody doing this. You know, a kid's danger. A kid sometimes is more dangerous with a gun or a car than an adult because an adult might think. A child, a lot of times, they, they don't see it that way. Their mind isn't developed. They don't really, um, they can't comprehend the consequences that, that, that will follow. So you've got a lot of great stories that you've written here in your books. Is there, is there one story that is your favorite? One I got uh, is actually the same guy that I was working with, with the stolen car. We used to call him cancer because got into a couple of gunfights and came out on top. So we used to say he killed more people than cancer. Great guy to work with. So in the early 90s, he worked with another guy that was an um, amateur magician on the side. So it's the early 90s. We're going to bars and talking to girls. And then he would come over and start pulling flowers out of his, out of his sleeve, pulling coins behind his ear, basically cock-blocking you with magic. So I went to his partner, who I later worked with, and I go, get him the fuck out of here. I says, like, how do you compete with this? So anyway... He turned around. He goes, you know, he goes, I wish he took his amateur magician act as serious as he did his NYPD career. So a couple of weeks later, these two, they're working at midnight. They get called to a basement apartment in the Bronx. And the only thing that comes over is calls for help. 
So they go into the basement apartment and this, uh, the basement area, and there's two doors. So they go to door number one, they're pounding on door number one, nobody comes out. My partner, who's a curious cop, goes to bang on door number two, and the magician stops him. He goes, come on, let's get out of here. He goes, no, no, I want to knock on the door. He goes, we made so much noise down here with our nightsticks, our radios. If anybody called the police, they would have fucking come out already. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. That's the magic word, because cops are cheap. So my partner goes, all right, fuck it. He doesn't bang on door number two, and they leave. Well, what they didn't know was behind door number two, the superintendent of the building lived there, and he was selling coke out of the apartment. Well, he fell behind on his payments to his wholesaler. So in the drug world, you know, your wholesaler doesn't send friendly little reminders or cancels your cable. They're going to whack it. So what they did was they did an old gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female with them. So they knock on the door and they put the good looking girl in front of the door. So the super thinks, oh, this is great. I'm going to get a blowjob and sell some coke. He opens the door. They bum rush him, right? They start pistol whipping him. Where's the drugs? Where's the money? Well, he does. He's a junkie now. He doesn't have the answers. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They drag him out of door number two before my partner gets there and they throw him in the incinerator. They go back into the apartment and they're ransacking the apartment. So now my partner and the magician are outside. They're just about to knock. And now the two hitmen tell the girl who's in on it, this is what we're going to do. If those two fucking cops knock on the door, let them in. Start yelling in Yugoslavian. They're in there. They're in there and lead them towards the kitchen. When you walk past this doorway, throw yourself on the floor. We're going to come out around and we'll shoot them in the head. We'll throw them in the furnace and we'll get the fuck out of here. We'll go for the trifecta. So obviously they don't go in there. And a week or two later, this guy's family is looking for him. He's nowhere to be found. The detectives get involved. They see that there's a call for help at that apartment. They bring in my old partner and the magician. They go, did anything not seem right? Or did you knock on the door? My partner goes, no. But the thing is, what I remember was when we were leaving, there was a car on a fire hydrant and I gave it a ticket. So that's the same way they actually caught the son of Sam. The ticket came back to the girl. They bring the girl in. She gives up the two hitmen, trying to minus her involvement, of course. The three of them go away for murder. They had to go back to the building in like the dead of winter, shut the heat off for hours to let the incinerator, um, the furnace cool down to pull this guy's skull and bones out of there. So that's a story called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. Because had my partner not listened to the magician, the three of them would have gotten burned up. Holy shit. I mean, we have a lot of stories like that here uh, doing the <laughs> podcast, so it's pretty familiar yeah. territory. Yeah, yeah, it gets very dangerous like that. Um, one of our co-hosts uh, was was killed. Um, oh, I'm sorry. By a microphone. Oh, yeah. By a microphone. No, he's kidding. He's totally Heavy kidding. microphone. Oh, you fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? A, you know what I mean? It was a, <laughs> it was a work accident. He, uh, he's, he got hit by a, a swinging microphone. <laughs> well, you, you know, you never know why someone starts a podcast. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right? Sorry for the uh, ah, false alarm good. there. You're good. I'm a ball too. Uh, great, great, great moment in this show. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, oh my goodness. Okay, so there are so many stories that you've written about, and and you have, uh, you know, just put on paper. Was there anything that you wanted to write about, but it was it was too far? Oh, definitely. And here's the thing. When I got into writing, law enforcement is like a secret society. You know what I mean? So the two things I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or in trouble or embarrassed. And I didn't want to get anybody divorced. So what I do with my books is I change ranks. 
I change time periods. I change precincts. I'll move characters in and out because I, I really don't want to illuminate somebody too much. Now, do I get phone calls and text messages the second one of my books come out? Like, I know who the fuck you're talking about, you know? Yeah, all the time. And then what's funny is my friends who were leery of me writing these books now were like, hit me up all the time. Hey, why didn't you write about this guy? Why didn't you write about that guy? So yeah, you know what's funny? There's a lot of people... Not a lot, but there's a couple of characters in my NYPD career that I just de generally despise. And I won't write about them just for the simple fact that I don't want to even give them attention. You know what I mean? It's like the pains in the asses I'll write about, but people that I generally despise, I haven't gotten there yet. And maybe I should, but I just, I'm not sour grapes. You know what I mean? And, and I know it would get too dark. I know myself. You know what I mean? I'm only human and I would, I would, I'd pile on. And what you have going right now is a great carved out section of the media where you're writing about these stories from a humorous point of view. And you went in that direction. You just sort of be lost in all the other true crime. See through it immediately. Like nobody likes a complainer. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. the same as like with your friends or something. You don't mind if your friend vents to you. But if they keep doing it, it's a Debbie Downer. It's like, oh, God, fucking now is he going to talk to me about his wife again? It's like, yeah, we'll fucking divorce her. Or you know what I mean? It's like you can't. How many times am I going to hear the same story? <laughs> well, Vic, uh, this has been a, uh, a great time speaking with you about uh, about your work and your career. We really appreciate your time. Is there somewhere that you would love our listeners to get your books? Is there one place that's better than the other? Yeah, all my books are available on Amazon. I mean, that they're the biggest and baddest cat out there as far as retail for paperbacks. I try to keep the price point down. All my books are available on Amazon. Paperback is ten bucks. Two ninety nine ebook download, and all my books are available Kindle Unlimited. So if you have a Kindle Unlimited account, you can just flip through the page. It's not going to cost you anything other than your subscription fee. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Ferrari five zero. And I read all my reviews, good and bad, because sometimes someone will bring something up and I'm not happy about it at first. And I'll go, you know what? They got a point. And other times like that guy was a fucking asshole, but it just depends. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um. <laughs> That's great. That is basically exactly how I feel. I'm sure you guys get the same thing. Listen, you guys are on YouTube, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure you see the comments section like, what the fuck is he even talking about? <laughs>